What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to the Power Company Podcast, brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. I am in Lander, Wyoming. Just got home a couple of days ago from a quick but successful trip to Vegas and Red Rock with an all-time crew from Boulder Climbing Community in Calgary. And I am back here, straight to the hustle, so many things going on right now, wrapping up this year in a in a big way. Um, number one, the Plugtone Audio Collective. You all know that we're a proud member of the Plugtone Audio Collective, along with American Climbing Project from Devin Dabney and Sins and Suffers from Mario Stanley, um, who just had an episode that's really fantastic. You should go listen to with Texas climbing legend Jeff Jackson. Uh, but also, I've been developing a new podcast, Breaking Beta, The Science of Climbing, um, where my good friend and fellow coach Paul Corsaro and I get together weekly to discuss a paper that's relevant or maybe not, maybe we just think it is, to climbing. Um, some climbing-specific papers, some that are general sports science, but all that climbers cite regularly and often are misinterpreting. Um, so we're going to be looking at one paper in-depth each week for 10 weeks, starting on December 8th. It's done. It's loaded. It's ready to go. It's so much fun. Um, I know... Talking about scientific literature doesn't sound fun. I promise you, the way we did this, quite fun. Uh, we're also um, at Plug Tone. Devin and I, in particular, are developing some new podcasts, working with some other podcasters. And in 2022, we're taking over the climbing industry podcast game. There, I said it. You're on notice. It's happening. Also, it is that time of year when the capitalist holidays are upon us, and whether we like it or not, we live in and participate in a capitalistic society, and I'm a small business owner, so this time of year helps us out immensely. We don't, however, sit on our laurels over here. We like to provide new things, and we've been working on some projects that are coming to fruition all at the same time. So we've got a bunch of new things coming to the website soon. Some of them are already in our hands. Some of them are on their way and will be to us by the end of next week, which is Black Friday, and will go on sale shortly thereafter. Number one, sharpen your sword hoodies. These are a long time coming. We worked with tattoo artist Nick Stiegel on a design that is so ridiculously cool. I can't wait to have it in my hands, on my body. If you happen to be following on Instagram, you saw the eagle and the sword 
uh, design go up just a couple of days ago. So those are coming very soon. We've also got Sharpen Your Sword beanies coming. We've got baseball caps, and we've got a Sharpen Your Sword zine that will go out for this holiday season with essays from from myself, from Nate, from Will Anglin, Carrie Scott, Devin Dabney, Brianna Blanchard, Ravioli Biceps. We've got a bunch of things in there um, all around that Sharpen Your Sword theme, different takes, different positions, different ways to look at it. And it includes a bunch of artwork from Nick Stiegel, like I said, the artist who designed our hoodie. It's so cool. All that will be on sale soon within the next week or so after you're hearing this. So be on the lookout for it. All right. Today's guest is Andy Leung. He is the headsetter at Climb Time Cincinnati, which is uh, a community that first raised me and then I was privileged enough to help to raise. I was recently back in Cincinnati and I had gotten to talk to Andy once or twice briefly, but I really wanted the opportunity to sit down with him and have an in-depth conversation about uh, root setting as a career, uh, his philosophies behind root setting, and the, the seeming dichotomy between setting at two different gyms, one that is still more old school spray wall, uses tape style, and one that's a little more modern setting. Um, best of both worlds there, as far as I'm concerned. So it was a real treat for me to sit down and chat with Andy in a place that is near and dear to my heart. Let's get into it. It's like the act of putting up that creativity as your job. It's for you, but the end product is not for you. You have to walk out the door for a moment. Um, I think that's really important is checking yourself. I'm, I'm curious, like we're sitting in climb time, Oakley, the new climb time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started climbing in the old climb time in Blue Ash, and I'm going to go climb there tonight just for awesome. nostalgia's sake. Yeah. Um, and back then, root setting was not a thing, really. Like Tony and Nero had sort of started doing it professionally. And there were a few other guys that were on his crew, but mm-hmm. that, that seemed like it, um, where I was in the climbing world. When did you start? And it was in Toronto. Is yes. that right? Yeah. What, what years was that? I'm curious how that scene looked at that time. Um, so I started in like March of like my whole climbing career actually started in March of 2011. And then about six months later, I actually started setting, um, and at a gym in like the east end of the city called uh, TCA or Toronto Climbing Academy. Um, at least for, I would say that time, setting as a whole was still very much not, at least for Toronto, I would say, not much of a profession. It's not that, oh, comps weren't happening or um, people weren't getting paid for their work, but it wasn't much in the way of where I could, easily make it a career at the time unless you could set for like 
internationally uh, in the States or on some kind of a bigger scale, um, it was very, very difficult. Um, opportunities were not easy to come by. Yeah. Was it even something that you considered? Like, did you even look into it that deep to realize it's not actually a viable career path? Or did it just seem like this thing people were doing? Uh, it just seemed like, at least for me, a natural progression because um, prior to discovering climbing, um, I had recently dropped out of art school and I was um, just looking for work at the past six months. And then I found randomly um, just an opportunity to become like a belayer for this facility. Um, and then one thing led to another. I, you know, I wasn't in school. I didn't have any other obligations. So I was kind of like just put my head down and see what I could do with it. And then root setting came along and really was actually really nice because it took over that creative aspect that I didn't have with art necessarily anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious about that too. Um, and, and we'll get into that, but I, sure. I kind of want to understand better how you go from this is just a thing to make some money for now. It's, it's a creative thing for me. You know, it's kind of become that. When did it occur to you that it actually could be a viable career path? Mm -hmm. And, and I'm asking because I'm unclear when that switch really happened. Um, you know, climbing, I think is an interesting thing because we're, we're constantly climbing on your creations, your products that are in the gym but we often don't put a ton of thought into how they got there what the those people's jobs look like whether it's a viable career path you know do you have to just be a single college kid or can you support a family on this kind of a a job so so i i don't know when that switch happened when i started it was trade for your monthly membership, membership yeah you know um and I think I probably set my first, put my first holds on the wall on a top rope route at Climb Time Blue Ash, you know. Um, I'm sure that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <Our> exactly. <laughs> um, but so I'm just curious, how, when did it come to that point where you were like, oh, maybe this could be something? Um, I think around like my second year of route setting, I was just really starting to consider like, oh, I really, really enjoy this almost like if not more than climbing itself, um, just because like the job itself entailed me to have to climb anyways. I wasn't about to lose that, but I got to be creative. And um, that's when I really started considering it entirely um, where, oh, I wanted to pursue this. And actually, I, I didn't know necessarily in totality what career I would acquire out of it, if you will, but um, I knew I wanted to pursue it more. Um, that's for sure. I wanted to see where it could take me. Yeah. yeah. Was there a pretty bustling scene of sorts in Toronto? Because I, I know Joe Rockheads was around. Um, did IO set in Toronto? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for many years he was headsetter of, of Joe's, um, at least from what I understand. Like I know of IO and I definitely respect his work. I've just never had the opportunity to like actually talk to him or mm. meet him in person. Um, just, you know, just the way that I guess that kind of worked out but um at least at the time when i started it was like uh, joe's um tca and then there was rock oasis um and then also i think uh 
I'm pretty sure gravity was still existing in like Hamilton, which is like pretty far southwest of the city. And uh, and then I think in Kitchener, there was like a rock and chalk. Mm. So that was kind of like our gym scene when I started. And then basically um, now, if the stat still holds true, at least, I don't know if it does. Um, but now like Toronto has one of, if not still like, uh, the most amount of climbing wall surface area per capita really of a major city. Yeah. It's kind of ridiculous. There's wow. a lot of small, small gyms everywhere. Wow. I had and, no idea. Yeah. There's like, I think it's like at least like 10 or 12 in the city now. It's crazy. Yeah. You would automatically think Boulder, Denver, Salt Lake city, something like that. But, but that's a big <clears> difference <throat> I would say is like Toronto has, because of the, I think a lot of it's like money leasing opportunities as well as zoning mm -hmm. it's hard to find a piece of property that will suit um what the climbing gym is looking for so we're stuck usually looking at a lot of smaller spaces um, right but it, it, it's not bad either it kind of is unique in that way because it offers its own feel and vibe yeah which do you prefer because now at you know in your current job here at climb time you're your headsetter for both gyms is that mm -hmm. right and this one is a, you know, while not a mega gym by any means, it's a bigger, nicer, cleaner, newer gym. The old Climb Time Blue Ash was maybe the first, certainly the first gym in Cincinnati, but mm -hmm. one of the first handful in Ohio mm -hmm. um, and has been around quite a long time. So it's a smaller um Dingy is not the right word. Um, Dungeony, maybe the word. <laughs> and I love that aspect mm -hmm. of it. Like I, I love going into those darker, harder to light, you know, old gyms. Yeah. Um, what's your preference to set on? Uh, really, realistically, it doesn't matter. Uh, I think what it boils down to is just like what are the resources available to us? You mm -hmm. know, because um, the best analogy I've heard is like, you know, if say a gym never decides to purchase new holds it's like a painter never having new mediums to work with you know it kind of gets stale at one right, point right because it's you can try but if you if you don't get volumes you don't get new shapes blah 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 you know um you're dealing with a lot of old polished holds that end up recycling because you can't really use them for much else yeah right, right. so um i think resources are kind of the more important part if anything because like we with the team I have now and shout out to them because they all work really, really hard. And we have someone like Mike Wheatley, who's 74 yeah, still putting up plastic, which is really impressive. Legend. Yes. Literally living legend. Um, you know, like we all, we care as equally. Yeah. I think the, maybe this, the, the only difference I would say, say between Klontime Oakley and Blue Ashes is like the intentions a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will, I'll say this just for, the benefit of you hearing it since you didn't get to hear it when it happened. But, um, Mike Wheatley stopped at my house nice. a few weeks ago in Lander, um, just happened to be driving by and was like, Oh, I should stop and see if Chris is home and got to chat with him for a few minutes. And he, for several minutes expressed his like, gratitude for the crew here, the community here for allowing him to, continue setting and you know coming in and having those interactions and he he loves it so much and i think that's a a credit to what you guys are building here so 
just wanted you to know that. No, no, absolutely. <clears throat> yeah. And thank you for that from him, especially. Yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, no, we, we love working with Mike. He's humble. He's great to work with. He's super nice. He works hard, you know, um, and we're kind of like flabbergasted at how he still keeps up with it at 74, but yeah. keeps him healthy. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like he puts up a good product too. It's just, and we want that because it's something different, something that we may be, especially like Andy and I might not necessarily set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's Andy Lockwood, by the way. There yeah, are two, there, there are many Andys. You here. just cloned yourself to no, I, I, to work I, in both channels. I, I don't want to clone myself. <laughs> God, no. So, out of curiosity, working in the smaller gym with older walls, um, and here in the bigger, newer gym, and I'm sure there's a, a bit of a different clientele. Do you change your style of setting? going from one gym to the other um what's the thought process there um i i would say for blue ash in particular it tends to be a little bit more training oriented not that it's not that we will will like completely go away from more novel movements if you will um but say for oakley we will set a little bit more commercially it's a little bit more friendly and approachable just because um oakley is the newer facility and it does capture a wider clientele especially Mm -hmm. um like sad to say but especially since the pandemic happened and even though we have reopened um we're not necessarily seeing the same number of check-ins as we have prior sure and um other like you know other gyms have opened up since you know like um on north side it's climb since has opened and we know like a mosaic has opened up in loveland all that kind of stuff so um people are going elsewhere for their product if you will um but uh i would say at least for like blue ash in particular because it's such an older facility and it has that bit of nostalgia to it it's like we want to keep that nostalgia i guess in some ways and keep people coming back because i'm not sure because i haven't traveled to many gyms in the states but we're probably still one of the few gyms that has a very very high density and we still use tape Mm. still use tape Mm -hmm. yeah so i don't know how much like for every single handhold and foothold so i'm not sure how many gyms still do that yeah how do you feel about that i think for blue ash in particular i think i'm fine with it um sure that it's dated but if i look at what it's trying to do I have no problems with it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, I like that. I, I appreciate that you take that into consideration. Um, not only because it's a nostalgia thing for me, but you know, when, when I was climbing there and every time since that I've gone into there, it does feel more like a gym filled with spray walls, mm-hmm. um, which gives it a really unique feel and flavor mm-hmm. and I, i'm not necessarily tied to the the tape aspect of it um but i do think that once you start once you introduce that color-coded system the the density goes down um just out of necessity you know yeah. um, so i really like the the filled walls aspect mm-hmm. of climbing there yeah, like here at Oakley, we set monochromatic and um, we just tag our climbs for the associated grades. But yeah, the biggest thing that we run into is just how do we not have conflicting colors? And that's usually the limiting factor. It's not a matter of do we have enough holds or whatever, but it's just like, oh, right. I can't 
fit this other pink as an example next to this one. That's really it. So our density is high, but not obviously will never be as high as blue ash. Mm -hmm. yeah. Have you looked at all? I'm curious how a commercial root setter sees this um, just because I've moved to apps for mm -hmm. my own spray wall. Have you looked at apps at all for climb time blue ash? Um, yes and no, actually. I have looked at like the stock act, I believe it's called. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I don't remember where it was developed. I think it's some European country. So apologies, I'm butchering it, but I know that yeah, there's, there's stoked and there's retro flash yeah. and a couple of others that do some similar things. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I think for those of us that want to do a spray wall thing, it would be interesting. Um, but yeah, like, uh, blue ash would be the best place for it. Cause then you could just make up your own problems, obviously. Mm -hmm. So it is a possibility. Yeah. I hadn't, you're, I mean, you just triggered that in my brain. I hadn't thought about the customer because blue ash still has new climbers come in, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. So not, the customer not as frequent anymore, especially through the pandemic, obviously, but sure. it, it, yeah, we do. So the customer coming in, the tape still does mean something um quite a bit you mm -hmm. know it's it's their their way of initial interaction with grades especially yeah, yeah. it's like oh this is this hard or whatever yeah yeah oh that's a that's a new thing actually i hadn't even thought about at climb time blue ash that didn't exist when i was there initially but has been there for a long time are the you know the different tape patterns mean yes. different things yeah so. and like i know some gyms will be like oh we want this to be like explicitly like oh a v4 and explicitly a v5 you know mm. um so we try and veer away from that just so that way as a whole when we do this here as well um at oakley but it's just trying to create a product that is still going to be fun but the biggest thing is it's something that's approachable and accessible so that way people don't get overly intimidated by just a number you know it's like you yeah. won't know if you don't try yeah. You're you're leading us into a never-ending rabbit hole here oh, with with grades. How the hell can you possibly say this is explicitly a V four? Oh, you can. Yeah. How do you, I'm sure you've had these conversations with clientele with your team? How do you approach grading in a world where it's our measuring stick? It's you know, whether we like it or not, mm -hmm. some of our self-worth is tied to the grades that we're climbing when we come into the gym. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and these grades, at least in my opinion, they they demand that you have a complete skill set or, and, you know, what the hell does the word complete mean in this instance, but they demand that you have this wide set of skills mm -hmm. Or the grade may seem drastically off to you. Um, and I think a lot of people come into the gym and go outside lacking a certain skill set. They encounter a grade that they think they should be able to climb. And then they're upset about the grade. Yeah. Know, rather than focusing on their own skill set, their own climbing. Yeah. Um I'm curious how you interact with people criticizing the grades, questioning the mm -hmm. grades. Um, I try and 
I do my best to definitely hear out everybody in terms of what their grievances may be in terms of the grade. It's like, oh, this move is too hard for whatever reason, you know, and I'll take into consideration of like, oh, how tall is this person? What mm -hmm. And, you know, if I've known this person for a little bit, especially, it's like, what are they generally going to be stronger at, you know, because... Um, say for both of us, like how tall are you, Chris? Five, eight. And what's your ape? Eight, five, eight. Oh, okay. So even. So yeah, yeah, even. Like I'm five, six, but I'm minus two. Mm. <laughs> so it's kind of like, what do you do? Where, where do you, where can you find the middle ground? You know, because we, we both know that it's impossible to define a particular number. Yeah. You know, especially within the gym. You know, at least outside it's concrete. It's going to stay static for the most part. But here it's like things change all the time. And how do you determine that? Right. And um, I do my best to kind of look at it in the eyes of like, okay, is this more of a issue of difficulty or is it an issue of accessibility? Mm. You know, um, because if it's just difficult and they're not ponying up and doing the move, then I'll be like, okay. But if it's something because of the fact that, oh, I don't, they don't have, say, a push foot or they don't have a high enough foot or whatever the situation may be, then I ask myself, is this something that we're lacking instead, you know, mm. in the product? Because sure, we will never be able to create climbs that will suit everybody, but it's the idea that how can we create climbs that will ideally suit the masses, right? The, yeah. Whatever the average may be, you know, in our clientele. Um, so like, you know, like most root setters will do is like, you know, a lot of people watching and then also just like asking and seeing what happens as well. Um, cause for us, I think the shortest climber we have, that's an adult is like four eleven or four ten, mm -hmm. And then we have adults. I think the tallest on our end is like six, six. Right. Yeah. And Probably that's, that's just heights, not accounting for ape. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So do you, uh, along those same lines, do you as a root setter feel like it's your job to introduce new elements of climbing in some sort of a progression to people um you know for instance this person might need a push foot or whatever mm -hmm. or a different foot because they're a little shorter is there a situation where you say no this is the move and we're not trying to give you another foot we want this move to be difficult in this way so that you learn how to do this. Yeah. Um, and it definitely will like depend on air quotes, the grade. Um, mm -hmm. So we, we definitely try and introduce different concepts of like, oh, what happens if you don't have a push foot? Oh, you just have to smear on the wall and use a smear as a push foot. Um, and, or like, and like, it sounds very silly because these are pretty common amongst more experienced climbers, but little things like step throughs or having wide feet or squared off positions or having drop knees or whatever, right? Like how can we introduce that in a way where it's like, it will feel novel to people climbing those things and they'll want to repeat them and learn those techniques and then making sure that um, there is that progression from grades, especially. So we're not, we offer like the appropriate challenge to our climbers. Yeah. You know? Um, so like that's tricky cause I, I, I guess like the only thing I'll say about that is it's like that appropriateness will change depending on your clientele. Sure. You know? Um, cause like obviously we don't have a lot of people climbing V9, V10 or whatever, you know? So it's like, oh, that 
becomes it's still important but it's not as concerning say as oh say all our v4 v3 climbers which are a lot yeah yeah i think it's really interesting because when i look at a lot of outdoor areas that have some unique element to their climbing um you know take wild iris for example um we or somewhere like the frankenura you know, we, we see these videos or these photos of climbers at the high end on these tiny little, you know, half pad monos, things like that. And we think that that's just an upper level climb, you know, but then when you climb in those areas and you're climbing on 510, there might be a half pad mono, but you have good feet. Mm -hmm. you know, and you do have to pull off of this little mono, but you can get your weight over your feet. And so it builds you up in this really slow and progressive way. Mm -hmm. And I often see people come into these areas having not progressed through the grades in, in that manner and then get injured on things that are relatively easy for them mm -hmm. because they haven't progressed through this specific grip type or this, you yeah. know, style of climbing or whatever. Yeah. And I think that's, and this is where it's tricky, I guess, because obviously like as climbers, be it your root setter or gym owner or a customer, or you only climb outside or whatever, we all have our say preconceived notion of whatever a grade may be. Yeah. Um, we're all guilty of it, you know, and it's hard because, um, you know, oh, this 510 is easy for me, but the, for the next person that has maybe climbed even a harder grade, this 510 for whatever reason is hard for them, right? Yeah. And it's not that they're lacking in ability in terms of the capability of actually doing it. It's just like asking ourselves, what are we, I, I like to think of it as it's like, it's not what you're not strong at. It's like, what are you not, what are you not good at? What have you not learned to do, mm -hmm. you know? And I think with, us at least at climb time it's like we're definitely still like a older school gym so um a lot of our clientele do climb outside so it's kind of like you know for us the closest region would be that's major is the red so um you know a lot of our clientele will want to climb ropes or train on boulders to get strong to climb on ropes so yeah it's having that stuff that will suit that need of oh my my goals are to climb outside but um kind of sprinkling in little things that kind of challenge them to think a little bit differently. Yeah. yeah. And I'll take that one step further beyond the, you know, this person may not be strong enough or this person may not be, you know, good enough. Uh, that's a loaded way to say that, but yeah. they might not have the right skill set or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, to, they may not value that thing, you know, something I've, I've paid attention to a lot in climbers over the past five or six years is that we set up these kind of value systems for ourselves um, that may align with our goals. They may align with what we're already good at and look good doing mm -hmm. uh, or get praise for in the gym. And we, we stack our values up in those categories, um, which then causes us to lower the value of these other categories. And I, I think I see that happening a lot with older climbers who are, you know, I'm a crimp climber, you know, so they look at slopers and they're, they don't value the slopers because they don't look good on them. That's not the climb they gravitate to outside. Mm -hmm. It's not anywhere close to their hardest send in the gym. So 
then they avoid slopers, then they get worse at slopers, you know. So it's this perpetuating, self-perpetuating cycle. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that with volume climbing, um, you know, with big macro holds. Um, even though, in my opinion, volume climbing might even be more realistic to climbing outside in a lot of cases. Um, but we just stripped that out of our value set mm-hmm. um, for whatever reason and avoid it and then get worse at it. Yeah, I, we all know of that whole scenario where it's like, um, and I've heard this on like other episodes of your podcast where people are talking about how it's like, if they can't do that climb, they hate it. Right. And then the right. moment they figure it out, it's like the greatest thing on the planet. Yeah. You know, um, and I think for all climbers, we're all at one point at least guilty of it, you know, and it's hard because I think when we are shut down, when we don't perform well, obviously that challenges our ego. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it's like, if we look at climbing as a athletic pursuit for whatever reasons you might have, it's like, why not learn and be well-rounded, right? It's a hard thing to always be in the mindset of, because it's like, sometimes you just don't want to learn. Sometimes you want to just feel good on the wall and just have fun. Um, and that's perfectly valid as well. But I, I think, you know, um, at least as say a root setter, I think there is that demand of you to always be as well-rounded as possible. It's like you suck at slopers, set sloper problems, climb on them, get better at them. Mm-hmm. You suck at pinches, pinch everything, even if there's no thumb catch, just force yourself to do it, right? Yeah. So that way you not only learn to climb on it specifically, right? And move better on those type of handholds, but then when you set, you don't just see them as, oh, I have to hold it this way. right? You start thinking a little bit more outside the box, yeah. Yeah, I think I think setting is this really cool opportunity to learn how other people engage with the things that you may not be good at. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you have a setter who, like you just said, isn't good at slopers, and you're like, "Well, set some sloper things." Normally, those are going to be easier than the person's top ability, mm-hmm. uh, and then they have this really cool opportunity to watch people essentially test run their product, Mm -hmm. you know, and they can see these people who might be really good at slopers find a solution that is better, hold a hold in a different way. And, and then you get to have all these light bulb moments. It's such a cool opportunity to think, Oh, I would hold this sloper this way. I'm going to put it here. Here's how I'm going to interact with it. Mm -hmm. And then you watch someone else who's really good at that do something entirely different with yeah yeah absolutely and i think that's why like um you know like i'm gonna speak for myself at least it's like i highly value my team um because it's like we have a varying degree of um not just in terms of like anatomy like i'm the shortest one on the team um andy's well mike is the tallest but at least setting with us regularly and andy lockwood's the tallest you know and he's positive ape as well so it's like there's a very big variance in terms of height and skill level in terms of also what we're strong at. And I think mm-hmm. that's really, really interesting because it's like, I'll set things in a particular way and um, he'll struggle on it. And then right. he'll set other things that I will struggle on. And we have the opportunity, not just as climbers, obviously, but as setters to learn from one another. So um, yeah, like I highly value my team and it's like, um, 
one person I do miss setting with right now is Sierra and uh, she moved out to California, but like she was like, she was shorter than I am. She was for a while, like our shortest setter and um, brought something different to the table as well. And so, you know, I think not just prizing your strongest climber or your strongest setter is ever a good thing. Never. Um, you're, you can easily learn from your, even if they don't have a huge amount of experience, it's like, they're going to look at things differently because they're, they're a different brain essentially. Right. Yeah. So there's always an opportunity to learn regardless of the skill level. Yeah. And uh, I think sometimes experience sort of pigeonholes us into this place, um, that, that closes our mind off to these other ideas. Oh, know, absolutely. That a, that a total beginner who's never looked at a climbing hold might have, might have this really creative idea of how to use it, how to interact with it, mm -hmm. that we never would have thought of because we have all these preconceived notions of what it is, how to use it, what it's made for. Mm -hmm. You know, I often hear setters um, and shapers say, this is a right hand hold, you know, yeah. or this is a left hand pinch, you know, but what if it's not, what, if, what if it's a right hand undercling, you know, sure, yeah. what if it's a Gaston, you know, it just because it was shaped and made for one specific purpose doesn't mean it can't be used in a multitude of other ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think <clears throat> that's where it's like kind of circling back a little bit it's like oh having that variety of also in our resources is really important because then it's like sure you have this new shape but then you know setters get excited about it especially if it's a new set that's just came out or whatever but it, it, it's like christmas um yeah of course <laughs> always more plastic you know sorry environment um uh but then it's always a question of like oh what can we do with this right right all of a sudden you stop looking at it as just purely this down pulling hold whatever it may be but it's like can i use it for a knee bar or whatever all these little funky things and i think um that's where having a varied skill set a varied team is really really important yeah yeah i i used to paint murals here in cincinnati it's what i did for 20 some years nice and uh, murals and decorative wall finishes and a couple of times a year our team would bring somebody in who had created all these new products uh, that you can use to do decorative wall finishes and they would give us a class on how you use their products and never once did i make the thing they were instructing you know <laughs> i was just like tell me how this product works, works yeah and then i want to play with it and expand it and see see what i can do with it um see what other uses it might have that no one has thought of yet and occasionally the teachers would get really excited about that mm -hmm. but then there were also the teachers who were like that's not what it's for yeah you know and i'm like you don't know what it's for you like know? who is to define it yeah <laughs> right yeah it might be for something you haven't even thought of yet yeah you know? absolutely um and I think that's really a valuable way to look at setting mm -hmm. too, because I can't tell you how many times I've walked up to a rock climb outside and said, man, it would be cool if this were oriented this way, you know, or I could use it and engage with it in this manner. But you, you can't. Know, but I can't. Yeah. So you have to just adapt. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes it interesting because it's like, I always thought about 
root setting as like a two-folded problem in terms of like, okay, you have the person that's actually setting the problems for you, you know, and then how do you as a consumer interact with it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the m most difficult part about root setting is not necessarily creating good product. Um, like in your last, like I think your last podcast, at least that's out right now with, uh, what was his name, Kevin? Uh, he says the coaching, I apologize. I don't even know what the last one I put out is. It's all right. Um, but you guys talked about coaching and like mentorship. Oh, with Kyle. That's right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and how Kyle you talked about like, oh, you know, when we're looking at setting as a whole, it's like how much of that also is influenced by the people that are around you, mm -hmm. you know? And I, I think that's where, you know, you want to be able to create an environment where people want to seek out novel experiences. They're one-off things, you know, it's not that you can't have some repetition, obviously. Right. Um, but the idea is, is that, you know, climbing is a novel experience. You're going out there doing these climbs. Sure. You can repeat them, but inevitably it's like, no, you want to try something else because mm -hmm. you've done it before. Right. So I think as a root setter, it's like, it's hard. Um, cause people don't realize that it's not only obviously physical labor, but it's highly creative and there's no it will never be perfect. Mm. It will never be perfect because it will never suit anybody perfectly. Yeah. You know? Um, do you get, because it will never be perfect, do you ever get attached to boulders or roots that you put up and, not, and want to keep them there? Not anymore. I've actually tried, like, trended in the opposite direction um, because of the fact that it's like, um, you know, all root setters will put up some level of trash at one point um if not and, and definitely multiple times it has mm -hmm. to happen um but it's that idea of like why am i so attached to this and i ask myself and you know like sure this i'll be happy about this climb because it climbs well or i got this particular move out of it but at, to what end mm -hmm. you know eventually it's going to come down anyways so why be so invested just learn from it instead you yeah. know see and i think depending on the facility that you work at and like what your clientele is and you know are you setting on a rope or are you setting on a boulder and blah 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 and what angles it's like what what, what about those elements worked well what mm -hmm. did not work well right yeah. it's all iterative essentially so um yeah i try not to be attached anymore i look at it as this is like what's good what's bad what can i cut out and what can i keep yeah, yeah. i love that I actually, my friend Yasmin and I, mm. uh, who I've climbed and trained with for a lot of years, actually have in our Google calendars, RIP Yellow Root. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was a root at RockQuest yeah. set by Tony Fry that I actually once took down, cleaned all the holds and put back up. Oh, wow. Um, because it was such a good training route mm -hmm. for us. Uh, it was like our favorite lap route and... And it served its purpose wonderfully, you know, and it was a, a bittersweet day when it finally came down for good. But yeah. now every year we send each other messages on the anniversary of the yellow root coming when it down. Came down. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I wish this was still here. <laughs> but that's that's my only real um, connection yeah. uh, to, to a plastic boulder or root or, yeah. or honestly a lot of outdoor roots as well you know i feel like a, a lot of these roots outside boulders outside are on private property or on you know public lands that mm. could be revoked for one reason or another sure um 
And I don't necessarily see that as a loss for myself. It, it may be a loss for the community, but but I've had the experience, you know, it's, it's played its part in my growth Mm -hmm. in my, in my learning and, and I value it for that reason. Yeah. Um, and that's how I feel about most indoor climbs. Um, though there are some that do stick in my memory a little. (laughs) Please. (laughs) Please. What was your art? What were you focused on when you were in art school? Uh, So I guess like growing up, I did a lot of drawing, just simply pencil and paper. Uh, And then eventually as I went through high school, I kind of like got into more like things like graphic design. Um, I went off, I graduated high school and went off to OCAD. Uh, I was there for only a year and a half, but very quickly I realized, oh, this is not for me. Um, so I dropped out and then that's when I started looking for work and just miraculously found work at like a climbing gym. Yeah. Do you feel like your, I know it like took over the creativity aspect that you needed. Mm -hmm. Um, do you feel like any of the lessons you learned in art and graphic design, um, or, or any other art for that matter that you were looking at in school, did it transfer over to root setting um actually have never thought about that my because i haven't thought much about it at least right now i'll say not much if any at all just because climbing is at least for root setting specifically is so different Mm -hmm. um like the best way i can describe it is it's like a creative trade job Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. um, because it's like, you'll work at height or you're off a ladder, you're using tools, but the product that you create is not sure it's visual, but a huge element of it is that it has to have function, right? It has to climb for whatever purpose that it needs to serve, right? Be it a grade or a move. So, um, with, with graphic design and art in general, like traditional art, visual arts and specifically, it's just like, it's just meant to be consumed generally only through your eyes, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, so not much in that way. Um, but at least maybe the, uh, maybe that one element that does carry over is say having an aesthetically pleasing rep, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. Um, just having that balance between like handhold sizes and their placement relative to where relative to like where are your feet all that kind of stuff so maybe that yeah yeah i i've i've talked quite a bit to a good friend of mine tonde catillo about his thoughts on root setting being design versus art Mm -hmm. um a lot of people called it art and he pushed back a little saying he thinks it's design Mm -hmm. rather than art and and his reasoning makes total sense in that it's you know, it does serve a purpose and oftentimes the purpose of there, there is a, a explicitly stated purpose for design. Mm-hmm. You know, the purpose comes first. Yeah. Um, and, and that's certainly the case here. And I think one of the most fascinating things for me is that that purpose has changed over the years and has become much more nuanced than I think a lot of us think about mm-hmm. when we just come in and interact with it. Much like all of the best design in the world, you know. I have you ever listened to the podcast Ninety Nine Percent Invisible? No, I have not. It's a it's a podcast about design mm-hmm. essentially um, that's in the world around us 
but is largely invisible that we don't notice, you know, why, why are these things shaped this way? And, you know, well, someone designed it like that and here's why. And, and you may not think about it. And I, I think that's climbing gyms. It's this recreation, it's exercise, but it's also been pretty heavily designed by the people who made the walls, the people who shaped the holds, and then the people who put the holds mm -hmm. on the walls. Mm -hmm. So, and I think that's fascinating, especially to listen to your, your thought process of what goes into each of those boulders, each of those roots, um, to help a climber along. Yeah. Um, like for us, obviously the biggest thing that first and foremost is always safety. Um, it's like, even for safety, I would say it's not perfect because we sure. can't control what people do on the wall you right. know, and accidents do happen, but like we obviously do whatever we can to mitigate it. Um, and there are going to be freak accidents that happen. Um, but beyond say safety as a whole, yeah, it is all about like looking at the resources that are open to us and figuring out, yeah, like, okay, maybe for a V zero, I don't want something that's super novel. I want something where it's like, oh, I can have someone off the street come in and have, find some level of success and enjoyment. Mm -hmm. Right. But if I'm looking at say someone that climbs like OV six, right. It's like, okay, whatever that grade may mean. It's like, how can I have them try something for us as a root setter might be a little bit different or for them as a climber is a little bit different, you know? Um, and I think that exploration and movement, um, is really important because it kind of is really what, like, at least for, I think, like, I would like to think for a lot of us as experienced climbers is kind of like what we strive and kind of are hungry for is when we find something that is like really, really cool mm -hmm. and unique and different in terms of the way it asks us to like hold this handhold or, um, say for a lot of more modern bouldering, like doing these coordination movements or whatever, you know, and being like, oh, where else can I find this? You know, maybe a bit differently though. Yeah. Right. And if we look at like a coordination move, um, even, you know, just for the people listening who are, who were automatically like, as soon as I said coordination move, <laughs> you know, let's think of something like just a, you are pressed into this corner and you have to jump a little sideways sure. to latch this, you know, flat hold and, and control that swing. And this is something I've encountered outside a number of times, you know, I've also encountered it in the gym. Mm -hmm. And what I love about this designing of, you know, and moving climbers along is that there are multiple parts to that move, to getting pressed into that corner, to being able to, you know, find your balance, create momentum in one direction. You know, you trust the feet enough to do that and then understand your trajectory, be able to simultaneously focus on latching the hold, mm -hmm. you know, and then controlling the swing. And that's not something you just introduce once you get to v6 or v7 no. or whatever yeah. there are going to be situations at v0 where somebody's pressed into a corner and has to has to move a foot has to lean to the side there are going to be v2s where they can lean to the side grab a hold and their feet have to cut mm -hmm. you know all these building blocks that teach them little parts of these much more complicated moves um that ultimately they'll encounter when they get to these higher grades. Absolutely. Yeah. And 
I'll be honest in saying it's like, oh, I don't have the most amount of experience climbing on a pad bouldering outside. And most of my climbing experience is on a rope. But, um, you know, absolutely. Like having spent a little bit of time, say at Stonefort, at least it's like, oh, you're going to encounter stuff that you just won't necessarily encounter in a gym, which is why I kind of appreciate like some of the previous podcasts you've had just talking about like how, oh, if this were like taking this outdoor boulder if it were inside people would call it trash people would hate it people would hate it. zero stars yeah but it's like <laughs> but but the fact that it's outside it's like oh it's perfect right it's the best right it's super novel it's so interesting everyone who comes here has to climb it yeah you yeah if it's in the gym terrible don't touch that take it down now yeah and i think it's that perspective <laughs> of like for a lot of us as consumers of a product that it's like oh this can change so why not yeah. We rather not challenge ourselves in that way, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then obviously it's like a lost opportunity for growth. Um, but yeah, like absolutely like going through like outdoor boulders relative to indoor boulders. It's like, yes, there is a progression. Maybe the demand is slightly different depending on like the facility you climb at, because obviously it's say like the a new facility in Annapolis, North mass, you're like, it's a very modern facility, massive in terms of its size. But a lot of those boulders tend to be what people would consider comp climb boulders. Mm-hmm. I'm climbing a lot of like on features and volumes and arrests and using, it's not just like, oh, I'm pasting a foot down and then I press and go right. and grab the next hold. It's not right. always like that, you know? And I think it's good, good and bad, obviously, depending, I think, I think that good and bad part comes down to like, what are the goals of the climber? You know, because you're like, I would say like, oh, you're not going to encounter as much of that, say, if you're going to climb roots. Right. But if you're going to climb boulders exclusively, then that's fantastic because you will encounter that, not just in other facilities, Mm -hmm. um, more modern facilities, especially, but outside. Yeah. And I think having that progression is important. Um, Introducing your climbers to a variety of skill sets um, and coming back to root setting specifically for that, that's where I think it's probably one of the hardest things to do is take really complex or difficult movements, say you might find on like a six or seven or eight or nine or whatever the grade may be, but distilling it and finding a way to replicate that demand on a much more accessible level at like Mm -hmm. B1, B2, you know? Yeah. That's actually one of my absolute favorite things to do on my wall. Mm. Um, I climb with my wife and my office manager, Lana, quite a bit in the gym. And, and it's one of my joys to set warmups for them, warmups for me that are little mini projects for them mm-hmm. that are really creative and involve mm-hmm. moves beyond just a big pool between two holds, you know, where they have to tow hook and then match tow hooks and, you know, recycle something and, mm-hmm. you know, trying to make up these really creative, interesting movements at a much lower level. It's, it's, it's hard. so much fun. It's very hard. It's it teaches hard. you a lot about the relationship between holds and how mm-hmm. your body fits in the space. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's so much fun to do. Yeah. It's amazing. Especially when you're setting for someone who's a different size than you with different yes. strengths and weaknesses. Yes. It's taught me so much about how to see movement. Mm-hmm. So, And that's why, like, I think for root setters in particular, it, it's not, it's not a cheat sheet, but I think it's like, if you really want to like explore movement in a variety of different ways, not just traditional, obviously, and not just comp climbing, but like go outside and something random mm-hmm. even if it's easy you know um 
it's a great opportunity to just being like, oh, take those ideas back and learn and try and replicate the movement, but try it for someone that's significant, like for a grade that's significantly harder or significantly easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because then you learn it's like, oh, you can introduce these movements on a on a like a progressing scale, um, and then people can learn, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah so much. Um, something I've been really engaging with in my own life um is there are parts of my life that really recharge me and parts of my life that you know deplete me and and some of those things change over time Mm -hmm. you know whereas you know initially writing training programs was this really recharging thing and i really loved doing it and the the world of training while it looks like it might be fast moving depending on who you're following on instagram the actual um application of it really hasn't changed that much people still need to do the same things to get strong that they had to do 10 years ago Mm -hmm. um so that part has become less recharging for me and there are other things that do recharge me now more creative things such as What's that? Such as? Uh, like drawing the little charts that I put up on my Instagram. Oh, okay. You know, trying to take these complex ideas and make them really simple into a visual that people can can look at and immediately go, oh, now mm-hmm. I get it. Mm-hmm. You know, those, I, I'm really recharged by that. I'm recharged by these kinds of conversations where I get to sit down and dig into somebody's brain and what they know. Um, ideally, someone who I didn't know well beforehand you know and you we don't know each other very yeah, well <laughs> you, you, and, you and i have talked one time over dinner like, essentially like two years ago with a bunch of people yeah and and then little bits on the internet here and there mm-hmm. um and i'll walk away from this with more energy than i came in with not nice. just because it's the morning <laughs> but um and i'm curious has root setting changed for you in that regard i know you've been digging into photography lately um are you finding something creative in photography you aren't finding anymore at root setting or is it something you never found there to begin with um just curious how you're engaging with it as a creative person who puts a lot of thought into these things Mm -hmm. um i'll say for root setting in particular um there is still always that exploration that will never go away because again, if you're always seeking novel ideas, then you will have to always just look at whatever your resources are, you know, and, Oh, I'm have to set this grade. What can I do a little bit differently? You know, cause if you set at any gym long enough, you'll obviously for any root setter, they'll get familiarized with those wall angles. I mean like, Oh, I've done this before, you know? So it's like, what can I do a bit differently? Right. Yeah. And granted it's like, we're not, it's hard being creative every single day. No root setter wants to do that because then it's like you'll just burn out. Right. Um, I think it comes down to like whatever your baseline of creativity is or at least stuff that you've done is relatively high, whatever that means. And then there are certain days where it's like, oh, I'm feeling better today. Let's go beyond that a little bit. Mm. You know, like you're, whatever you're comfortable with in terms of like your library of movement that you can replicate quite easily. Um, without too much overthinking, it's like, let's just rely on that for now, for today, you know, um, kind of like that fallback, if you will. Yeah. Like you have your standard set of moves that you can put on the wall pretty Mm -hmm. quickly and easily. 
mm-hmm. you know people will enjoy it. It's not overly right. maybe maybe it's still complex for the customer, but for us at least as root setters, it's right. like it's not overly complex. You know, right? Um, and then maybe that miraculous day, it's like oh, I get to work with a new hold set, and I'm I've sat at this station before. Now it's like oh, what can I do differently? You mm-hmm. know? So uh, I think it's like how we've like how for say you've spoken about try um, for training. It's like yes you want to try hard when you're training yes you want to try hard when you go outside to you know send your project but it's like there's also a time to not try hard that's just equally as important as well right Right. you want to be able to just go out have fun not push yourself physically or mentally to Mm -hmm. the to the limit you know yeah um so i think for us as creatives it's like having that that rest is really important even if we still have to set yeah um so i think i think for that it's like in terms of how it's changed, it hasn't changed much. I think it's just more of the lines of like, as your library of movement continues to grow, your baseline slightly increases. Mm-hmm. And then from there onwards, it's like when you get that opportunity to push a little bit, then you can. Yeah. You just said something really important that I think a lot of coaches need to keep in mind. Um, I constantly have to remind myself Uh, And I know our team of coaches are constantly reminding ourselves. um, Is this something you have to talk to your team about or you see um, happening in the root setting world where we are, we're drawn to these like overly complex things that, that suit us at our level. Uh, And it's really easy to forget that the really simple things might still be complex for someone else yeah um because i mean that's where i think root setters kind of have that big advantage when they walk into any facility especially if it's not their own because of the fact that they root set they have automatically they or at least i feel like they should have um a higher innate ability for root reading Mm -hmm. right because like if you see the arrangement you might have actually done it yourself right so you kind of not don't have a cheat sheet but you have like this um, it's like having a cipher for a code kind of thing. Right, you, right. You, know, you can decode it a little bit more easily, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I think for root setters, having that level of introspection to look at the root setting and being like, okay, like this is easy for me, you know, be it the movement, the technicality, or the, the, the sequencing of this particular part of your climb, whatever it may be, you know. But what is it? how does a climber have to interact with it right the actual customer and i think that's where like obviously doing the people watching and whatever is really really important because you'll see climbers when they're trying to navigate that space and being like maybe they spend more of their time looking down all of a sudden Mm. than they usually would who knows or they're like trying like they're looking all over the place like where's my feet where are my hands why is this side pull or something you know um so looking at what they're struggling at is really really important because then it's like oh all of a sudden you see maybe maybe it's one customer but as you keep watching it's like oh there's this for whatever reason this trend that's occurring you see people struggling at this part they tend to always do this so you realize oh they struggle with this particular aspect within their climbing then begs the question of like, is, how can I continue challenging them? Or do I, do I want to challenge them in different ways afterwards? Mm. Yeah. Something you just said triggered this, <laughs> this like reaction that I've had. Um, very often there'll be a world cup or something, you know, some big comp where there's some really novel move that happens. And then, you know, the next week, 
on Instagram, there are going to be a thousand posts of people doing the same move in their gym because all the setters went in and wanted to do this move. Mm -hmm. And my normal reaction was like, oh, why can't we be original? But something you just said, and I'm not even sure what it was, made me realize that a lot of the customers watched that comp too. Mm -hmm. And now they get to come in and do a version of this move they saw Tomoa do. Yeah. You know, and and feel at a really tiny level what Tomoa, you know, felt mm -hmm. in this position eyeing up this move. And that's very cool. Yeah. And I think, you know, sure it may not be original anymore because it's been done at the World Cup stage. But um it's original. I think that originality is still in comes down to the individual or at least say the root setter or the facility or whatever it is right like that's someone still that's like that, that their first time you know so it still has just as much merit um and like no one should necessarily take that away from you um so i think looking at stuff that's been done before sure like one can argue nothing is original whatever yeah but it, that i don't know i feel like that point is kind of moot because like then why pursue novel experiences then mm-hmm it's the fact that for us, it's our first time, right? You know? And for root setting, it's like, yeah, recreate it. Sure, you might not have it on the wall ever again once it comes down for God knows how long, mm -hmm. but all of a sudden your team learns a new movement, your customers learn a new movement, or for at least how many of them that actually get to get the opportunity to really climb on it and experience it. Um, but then it's like, if you're a, a facility that pushes heavy on like comps or whatever, now you have something that you can add to the library as well. So it's yeah. exceptionally useful. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm now, because my mind was just blown by this, like re <laughs> rethinking of my own assumption about this. Now I want there to be like a, a specific zone in the gym where there's like a loop of Tomoa doing the move at the world cup. And then there's this boulder on the wall that replicates it, you know, and, and you get to pretend you're Tomoa for a few yeah. minutes, you know, yeah. you, you like get really serious and have your super stoic face on Don't when smile. you step onto the boulder <laughs> until you send. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen, speaking of which, have you seen Tomoa and Akio's YouTube channel? I have not actually. They I, did not, are, I did not know they had a YouTube channel. They are hilarious. They are joking and laughing and just being generally goofy which is not a side of Tomoa I had ever seen oh, yeah, or imagined, like, or Akio for that matter. Yeah, once they're on, like, once they're performing, it's like stone face the entire way. Yeah, yeah, until they win or something, and then they're just like, okay, all smiles. But you don't, like, you don't. I think people forget that these athletes um, are like just as human. Yeah, like sure, yeah. they they go out with a purpose. Yeah, but there's it's like, there's pressure in those situations. Yeah, and they have to know? perform. Yeah, I I bumped into uh, Team Japan in a grocery store in Vail when I was there to MC the World Cup. And I walked over and said, good luck to Tomoa. That's awesome. And my wife was like, did you just talk to him? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> and she's like, but he looks so mean. <laughs> He's probably a really nice guy. Yeah, probably super nice. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, now, now I need to just go look at World Cups and make boulder up. <laughs> yeah maybe um but to circle around to the other part of your question about like say photography and visual arts yeah it's like um not to sound all like 
mopey and stuff. <laughs> uh, but I guess it's like, for me, um, growing up doing visual arts was very much like a passionate thing mm-hmm. in the sense of like, um, it wasn't selfish, but it was just like, it's self-serving because I did it for myself because I wanted to, Right. you know, as a, as a youth and like as a teen, it was like, oh, kind of a means of expression and all that kind of stuff. But oddly enough, it was just kind of like school very much destroyed that. Like mm. I don't draw anymore. I don't paint anymore. I, I don't produce visual arts, at least in that manner. Um, right. It does not, like it's not fulfilling and, and motivating in any way. Um, but oddly enough, for whatever reason, photography has, is different in this sense, because it's like, I'm in a public space, but I'm creating something visual that I can share for myself or my peers or whatever, you know? Um, so I think it's just that it's like, as a creative or anybody that's creative, it's like root setting can be at times very collaborative, Mm -hmm. which is good. You want collaborative and you want collaboration, especially for a product that's not meant for you. That's meant for your customers, right? Right. Uh, Or your competitors as well. Um, but I think there is that time where you want to be able to pursue creative avenues for yourself and nobody else, where it's like, it's liberating, it's expressive. You're looking at the world in a different way and um, whatever the medium may be. Yeah. Know? And I think that's, I don't know. I, I feel like it's pretty important. Um, cause you, you, one would argue it's like, if, if you're creative and you can't create, it's like dying. Yeah, I think soul it's, just kind of withers away. <laughs> I think it's incredibly important, and I think it's just as important and not as often talked about to find the the nuance in that creativity, um, you know, and not lump it all into one big category. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, root setting is this creative thing, and you get to exercise that regularly, um, but it's also this very analytical thing for you and um there's a lot wrapped up in it beyond just creating um so finding a way to meet yourself you know where you need to be Mm -hmm. in that creative zone uh and finding the right nuance that makes you happy i Mm -hmm. think is is really really important to have yeah and like I don't like, obviously like, I don't know how other teams run necessarily. Like I've been fortunate enough to work on a, like in, all, like, in the almost 11 years of root setting I've done, I've been able to work with a lot of different teams, um, which I feel very, very fortunate about. Um, but like one thing that I don't, I'm not sure if this happens, but I don't see a lot of teams doing is it's like you have your root setter come in. They have all the time in the world to just set one climb. Mm. They're not pressured by, um, like there's no time restraint. Right. No kind of quota they have to No, like, like I'm, and they might not even necessarily have a grade requirement. It's just means for them to like set within their own head and their own space and not be bothered. And Mm. like, like they have to analyze their own product at that point. They still have to forerun, still has to be safe, all those requirements, all that kind of stuff. But, um, they have much more breathing room. Yeah. And I think that's really, really important because if all we did was set commercially or all we did was set for comps, then it's like, if we're always going to extremes, what about the middle? Or at least the, even if it is the middle, say it's like, maybe it's an extreme in an, a different avenue. Sure. Right. And I think as for a creative job, essentially, you know, it's like, there needs to be that space where you 
don't like some of the pressures are taken off. Yeah, and you can just do it purely for yourself. It sounds selfish, but I think it's necessary、uh, as a creative outlet. Yeah, and oftentimes what sounds selfish is this thing that that you know can drastically raise the quality of the overall output,、mm-hmm. and then it's really no longer a selfish thing because everybody who interacts with it benefits, gets the yeah. benefit. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. That's why it's like, I think for root setters, one of the, not the most, maybe not practically speaking, it's not one of the hardest things to do, but like,、um, kind of like in our own headspace at least, it's one of the hardest things to do is not be attached, obviously, because it is our work, it, it is our creativity, right? That's being expelled on the wall.、Mm-hmm. Um, but the question is, it's like, how do we also, you know, take a step back and detach ourselves from it, right? And you have to. I think that's where the team, the difficulty is like having that collaboration. In some cases, it's like really important because then you have to give it up to the rest of your team. They all give their opinions. We all do the tweaks, and it's like, sure, it's not the same anymore. But that's the point that it's not the same. That it's a collaborative effort as well. If all you wanted to do was set for yourself, then it's like, what's the point? You might as well have a home gym. Yeah, just just build yourself a home wall. That's、yeah. what I did. <laughs> But I mean, I've seen it. Like you, you obviously open up your doors to like other people. You know, yeah, and, and actually, that's a really key component of、mm-hmm. it that I love is having other people's boulders, setting for other people, having other people set for me,、mm-hmm. and and creating boulders with you know with my friends.、Mm-hmm. Um, definitely part of what keeps me recharged. Yeah. So yeah, like. Definitely, definitely, really, really important.、Um, and the last thing I will say, especially for like root setting in particular, is like definitely checking your ego. Super,、mm. super hard.、Um, as creatives, like we're ob- like it's very easy to get attached、um, with the product, how it should be done to you. Especially like if you get really invested, it's like oh, you have to climb it with this particular beta, and it's like,、yeah. but nobody gives a crap if the easiest way is. This other method, right? So it's like letting go of certain ideas and then being invested in others, you know.、Um, but also like realizing that the way way I've always put it, it's like the act of putting up that creativity is your job. It's for you, but at least in a commercial setting or a comp setting. But like the the end product is not for you. You have to you have to walk out the door for a moment. Yeah, you know.、Um, I think that's really, really important. Is checking yourself. It's very difficult. Yeah, I think I think that's a really great piece of advice, and it's sort of it brings up this this thought that I I love I you know on my home wall I can make all the rules I want、mm-hmm. you know I can set rules for every move of a boulder if I want to, and you have to do it the way I want you to do it,、um, and and there's value in that in a training sense,、um, but what I really love to do is. Try to force those moves without having to set those rules.、Mm-hmm. You know, give you all these options that you can work through, but make the way I really want you to do it the, the best option.、Way. Yeah, and and it doesn't always work that way. And I see that more as a the same value of lesson as getting to watch someone who's really good at slopers, and I'm really bad at slopers. This is actually not true. Slopers are my strong suit, but if I were bad at slopers and getting to watch someone climb on my sloper boulder and do it in a way I'd never imagined gives me this new tool,、mm-hmm. it's the same with 
I wanted them to do this move this way. Oh, but look, they found this other solution. Yeah. So I don't take it as a, a slight. I don't take it as a knock on me mm -hmm. at all. It's more, oh, here's a thing. Here's a tool I didn't know, mm -hmm. you know, and now I have it in my toolbox. So I think it's, it's a really valuable piece of advice to set your ego aside uh, when it comes to what's, what's intended with the boulder and yeah. let people show you what they see out of it. And then you can add that to your, your process the next yeah. time and, you know, try to try to remove that possibility from it mm -hmm. if you can. So wait, I'm curious now, like how much, uh, cause you said you've set a blue ash before. Mm -hmm. So like how long ago was that? <laughs> Ooh, what year is it? Uh, it would have been starting around 1995. Oh, wow. Okay. That's a long time. A long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for a few years after that, I worked at the gym mm -hmm. for a while, sat there a bunch. Uh, and at the time, I was thinking about this on the way over. We would set top ropes. We would set lead routes. Um, so you used to have that whole mm -hmm. big lead wall. It's still called the lead wall. used to be bigger. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, so my first lead routes were set in a roof, essentially. I don't remember ever setting boulders. I think we just put holds up and then taped boulders. So Interesting. Similar to the way that I would do a spray wall now, sort of similar. Though even now there's more intentional setting of it mm -hmm. um i don't i don't recall ever setting a single boulder oh wow okay would you ever want to put up plastic here <laughs> yeah i think it would be very fun okay. I, I love setting <laughs> i'm very slow at it that's okay um but i do i love it okay maybe so, next time you're in town <laughs> yeah next time in town i would love to okay it'd be really fun that'd be a lot of fun yeah i'm sure like all of us would enjoy it that's why yeah yeah me too i would love to learn from you guys yeah, so that'd be a lot of fun these these folks here are lucky to have you thank you um i'm i've talked to a lot of people in this community you know this, this is my community mm -hmm. um and a lot of the people i've talked to have nothing but good things to say about you and about your philosophies and and just uh the interesting person that you are so i'm, I'm glad we had this <laughs> opportunity to thank you very much yeah um and i i don't like i'm not exactly sure who you're hearing this from obviously um but i appreciate the kind words um yeah because like obviously for me like most of my if not i would say at least for eight of the setting like eight years of setting that i do have it's like a lot of it was from like canada um and it's been interesting to like bring that experience and kind of, so to speak, implant it into a completely different community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but I feel very privileged and honored to like be in a position where, okay, like these group of people like do it, do enjoy it and appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, glad you're here. And Thank you very much. Thanks for sitting down with me. Absolutely. Anytime. First off, big thanks to Patty Law, Andy Lockwood, Mike Wheatley, the rest of the crew over at Climb Time for letting Andy take some time out of the day to sit down and talk with me. It, it means a lot to me to hear um, what's behind the thought process that goes into helping that community grow. Like I said, it's a community near and dear to my heart. And I appreciate that someone who is spending a lot of time thinking about it is is at the helm of 
how those climbers are learning to move, um, what they're learning about themselves in the process. It's not a job that should be taken lightly. Um, Andy is not taking it lightly. And also, if you're in that climb time community and you're, you're listening to this episode, keep in mind that maybe what you don't like about that boulder you're trying is exactly what you need. Maybe you should pick up a copy of my book, The Hard Truth, there at Climb Time, and read it. You might need that advice. And if you happen to be visiting Cincinnati, stop in first to Climb Time Blue Ash. There's a lot of history in that building. Um, Some of the first jibs, screw-on holds for a climbing wall were created there, a company called Crater. The American Bouldering Series began there. Uh, Scott Rennick was a big force in that. He owned Climb Time back then, and that essentially became USA Climbing. lots of history in that building and then go across town to climb time oakley and see how a climbing community can evolve when the right people are in place okay don't forget coming soon sharpen your sword hoodies a zine beanies all sorts of things those are going to be on sale very very soon and they can be in your hands by christmas i promise You're going to love this new stuff that's coming out. Also, Breaking Beta, the Science of Climbing podcast, drops on December 8th. The trailer is out now. You can find links right there in your show notes. Go listen to that trailer. Get subscribed so that you don't miss out on episode one when it drops. We'll be talking about Ava Lopez's first paper on finger strength. In 2022, Plug Tone Audio Collective taking over. Watch and see. All right. You guys know where to find us, powercompanyclimbing.com. You can find us on the Instagrams, the Facebooks, the Pinterest, the YouTubes, at Power Company Climbing. Check out our new community forum at community.powercompanyclimbing.com. And if you want to argue about boulder problems in the gym, do it on Twitter. That way, I can't see it because we don't tweet. We scream like eagles. This time, 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 this